2: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and today's episode, which continues our iconic ships series. Today, we hear about HMS Agamemnon. If you've not heard any of our previous Iconic Ships episodes, please do find them in our back catalogue. You can search through everything at snr.org.uk and you'll find all of the other iconic ships we've covered, including the enormous German five-masted clipper ship Preussen, the exquisite 17th century Swedish warship Vasa, the Andrea Doria, one of the most famous passenger liners of the 1950s, the mighty Tudor warship Mary Rose, the Anglo-Saxon masterpiece, the Sutton Hoo ship, the monster Tudor ship, Henry V's Grasse Dieu, the tragic Lusitania, the phenomenally enormous Great Eastern, Shackleton's ship Endurance, only discovered so recently below the surface in Antarctica. And this is only some of the jewels of maritime history we have presented for you in our iconic ships series, so be sure to listen to everything we've done before. Today we head back to the 18th century, the time of the wooden walls, and we hear all about HMS Agamemnon, a 64-gun third raid that saw service in the American Revolutionary War, the French Revolutionary War and the Napoleonic Wars. And she fought in many of the major naval battles of those conflicts. She even had a reputation as being Nelson's favourite ship. After a seriously eventful career, her working life ended in 1809 when she was wrecked off the River Plate on the coast of Uruguay. The location of her wreck has been known since the early 1990s but in recent months has become the focus of efforts to preserve her as she is threatened by erosion, treasure hunters and shipworm decay. To find out more, I spoke with Mary Montague Scott who is director of the Maritime Museum in the 18th century shipbuilding village at Buckler's Hard on the Bewley River in Hampshire. Mary has always had a passion for maritime heritage, the sea and sailing, and is currently active in maritime archaeology, keeping boat building skills alive and as a trustee for the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth. HMS Victory, HMS Medusa, and she is Commodore of her local yacht club. Her dream is to dive on the wreck of HMS Agamemnon built in Buckler's Hard in 1781 and see her story brought to life again in the original slipways. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoy talking with her. Here is the fabulous Mary. Mary, thank you very much for joining me today. Fantastic. Well, lovely to meet you. Let's start by talking a bit about Buckler's Hard and why was Buckler's Hard important?
1: Buckler's Hard was important because at the time the Navy were really pressed to find private yards to fulfil the contract for the many, many ships that it needed. Buckler's Hard was surveyed as being one possible place which was suitable for shipbuilding. There had been shipbuilding there from sixteen sixteen ninety eight at the time but by 1750 they really were needing a lot more ships to be built on contract by private yards and at that time henry adams the shipwright came across um, as a surveyor from chatham and was asked to come and build at that time it it became a very very probably the biggest shipbuilding yard private yard on the south coast for the navy um under henry adams seven, 27 ships were built the navy and a total of 50 ships built between about 1750 and 1820 so it really was a, a very large industrial yard in a very remote place on the south coast with proximity to Portsmouth and importantly had a good supply of timber with yep. um, the beauty land around it where they had good access to to wood one thing of course that's often a misnomer is that actually the the new forest of which it sits in the centre of it all the timber from the new forest was for the Royal Navy Yards. So actually, while the Beaulieu estate is within the New Forest, it's, that timber would, went to Buckless Hard, but the actual Crownland estate timber would have gone to Portsmouth and Chatham and so on.
2: Mm. Well, let's move on to the Agamemnon. And why was the Agamemnon built?
1: My goodness. Well, a 64 gun ship. Um, it was the third in the class that was built. They were. The Ardent class, designed by Thomas Slade, the senior surveyor of the Navy. Um, The first one of the Ardent class was built actually sometime before in 1762. By the time the uh, Agamemnon was laid down in 1777, that time Thomas Slade had died. But the the class was very successful and they they continued to build actually seven in that Ardent class. And uh, at the time... The yard at Bucklessard was very busy. There was a lot of shipbuilding going on. It was at its absolute peak, really, from then till around 1805.
2: Well, let's talk about third rates. I mean, she's a, so she's a relatively small ship, so she's not a big first-rate, big sort of cumbersome three-decker like HMS Victory, a bit smaller and a bit nippier, and so had a variety of uses. Is that right?
1: That is absolutely correct. So she's actually... Uh, more in in terms of speed and performance, a bit more like a frigate. That's why they were very popular with their captains. They were fast. They were nimble relatively to the bigger ships, but they were very solid. Uh, The keel was 132 foot long. The gun deck, 160 foot. So, yes, smaller but more nimble, certainly fast. And when they were coppered, faster still. And particularly with Agamemnon, she was famous for her speed and maneuverability. Mm. and what are the
2: written records like for her design and construction do we know a great deal about that process
1: well the ardent class plans survive not the plans for agamemnon specifically but we do have at uh, greenwich there is a full set of the ardent class plans which are very very useful and we learn from those. There are builder's notes on those. We have some records and, of course, the logs for the ship itself. So there is quite a lot of evidence about, certainly, her, her qualities as a ship in terms of sailing. Mm. Was
2: there much correspondence between Buckler's Hard and the, and the Navy board that has survived?
1: Yes, there's a lot of correspondence because the Navy surveyors were constantly backwards and forwards, of course, renegotiating the rates um, when the contractors put out. Um, for the master shipwrights and the master builders, there's always toing and froing problems with supply of timber, supply of supplies from the Royal Dockyards. There's a lot of correspondence that survives, which is very fortunate. So we've got some in our archives, but of course, over in the National Archives, there's a lot too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, Beauty, as you say, was pretty remote. Um, it still is pretty remote in some yeah. respects. Do you think there was it was a bit of a fanfare when she was actually launched?
1: Every ship that was launched was a fanfare. Um, she was launched in uh, 1781. And yes, all the commissioners would have come across from Portsmouth. They would have sent a gang about a month before with the bilge waves, what they put around the hull to prepare her for launch. Uh, The yard would have been cleared at that time. And then about a week before, about 100 men would come across in uh, rowing gigs and they would then have the huge launch ceremony. It was a big thing in the local community. It's thought that up to 3,000 people sometimes came to the launch of a ship at Buckler's Hard, which is an incredible number given how remote it is in the New Forest. And in fact, even the king uh, tried to come for one of the launches later on for the Spencer but unfortunately didn't make it down, got stuck in Lindhurst having too many parties but it was a big event locally and I think would have brought the community together from across a very wide area.
2: Yeah so I mean she's launched and then um, internationally the the situation kind of falls apart a bit doesn't it because of the the American colonies declaring their independence so uh, tell me about her first tour of duty during the war of American independence
1: so she 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 goes across of course um, firstly she's in the in the her first action as such is that she 's in the channel fleet and then she gets taken across to America um, with captain Caldwell and um, she is in the American Revolutionary War in the conflict there, and I have to say i 'm not that knowledgeable. you would be probably more knowledgeable than I am on this one
2: <laughs> That's
1: right. um, i the thing that I am weakest on is all her Action, knowing every detail of her thirty years of history, because it is an incredibly long and rich history.
2: It is. I mean, it, it's actually it's it's worth saying here that the Agamemnon is unusual because of the number of actions, the number of battles that she was in, and however much we think about um, about uh, sailors of the Royal Navy spending their entire time fighting, they they didn't do that. They spent the majority of their time painting and kind of being on blockade duty. Um, but certainly, she. Um, She enjoyed a bit of action early on in the American Revolution. I think it was the Battle of the Saints.
1: Battle of the Saints. She she absolutely had a key, quite a key role there where she uh, was in that battle, came back in and was quite severely damaged in that battle.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting the way that the Navy's role changes also between the, the War of American Independence and how that subsequently changes with the French Revolutionary War and then the Napoleonic Wars, because she really goes on to kind of enjoy her fame subsequently, I think, in the in the 1790s, which is where we have this um, very uh, clear link with, with Nelson. So tell us about Nelson's association with the Agamemnon.
1: Well, Nelson is her captain, um, he, he comes in, in January 1793. He's chosen by Lord Hood to command the first ship of the line, the Agamemnon. So it's a, it's a very exciting time for him. And he's very excited about it because it's known that the Agamemnon is a very fast and nimble ship. And he recruits, Nelson specifically recruits the men from his home county of Norfolk and Suffolk. And he sends a lieutenant across there to recruit his, uh, his crew from the counties that he loves. And he goes on board in in February 1793. And this is, um, you know, so he's got his band of brothers. He's got this ship set up as is. And he's on that ship for three and a half years. And it's a very significant part of his life where he hones himself as as a captain. And obviously, this is where he develops his character and his skills through the use of Agamemnon. And that's why he absolutely loves the Agamemnon. And he always says, you know, he's constantly quoted as being his favorite ship. He, he is definitely someone who, you know, through his life, refers back to Agamemnon time and time again in, uh, in his life. And he writes to Fanny and he says how much he loves spending time on the ship, that she has nimble and she has great qualities. You know, yeah. that she, in the maiden, she's very fast for her size. He says, without exception, one of the finest 64s in the service, with the character of sailing remarkably well. And so he, and he says again, admirably, Agamemnon sails admirably, we think, better than any other ship in the fleet. And <laughs> very swift and manoeuvrable.
2: I've always wanted to be able to unpa- unpack that, because um, if you, I think it's very difficult to do. I don't quite know how to do it, because... A, a, Some of the the ships really sailed appallingly, but there was a kind of a middle ground um, and there were competitions and there was a great deal of pride with sailors and captains of the ship. So, So many of them say that actually their ship was the best ship. But I think with Agamemnon, this seems to have really truly been the case.
1: Yes, I don't know. It's interesting. Some people have been doing research about the actual speeds recorded from the logs to try and actually evidence this in some way. But it is quite vague. It may be that she just was sailed better by the crew or by the by the individual captains. But clearly she did sail faster than some of the other of her class. Um, But who knows? It it may have been down to the sailor. I mean, you know, I sail myself and I know it isn't always the ship. It is actually the sailor (laughs) as well. It's a combination of the two.
2: Yeah. Yes. Occasionally they have races. Um and if you can actually get an actual uh, recorded in the log that to say the Agamemnon raced mm. another another uh, a ship of the similar class you get a, you get a good idea but most of the time it's just a kind of a sense of pride I think which is really interesting but that really does come across with Nelson's relationship with the Agamemnon. Um and it's it's during his service on her that he 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 gets injured very badly, doesn't he?
1: That is absolutely right at the Siege of Calvi. Mm. And, you know, it's terrible. He, he loses the sight of his right eye in that battle and six crew were killed. This is, you know, an incredible thing after a, a long siege of Calvi, a 51-day siege. It ends with this this tragic loss of his eye. But, of course, it, it probably stirs him on, gives him the respect of his crew and his men. And that is very seminal in his life and in, in how he develops as a captain. And that happens, of course, on the Agamemnon. Thank you.
2: uh, she does so well, I think, in these first years of the French Revolutionary Wars. It's very common, actually, with other ships in the Navy who really enjoy a um, a good few years of the French Revolutionary Wars. So, and it all goes a bit wrong in 1797 when you have these mutinies. You have mutinies at the Spithead. You have a mutiny at the Knorr. And, um, and the Agamemnon is very much caught up in that. I mean, her, queue, her crew do mutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and there 's a, a certain a, a bit of a, a stain on on the crew uh, they managed to 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 kick off the the hard line mutineers and it 's not long before she 's back in action again and Then war breaks out again, and we 've got the napoleonic Wars and um, I think this is where the, the Agamemnon is is also very well known for her role at the Battle of Trafalgar. so tell us about that
1: so she 's then at that time under Captain Berry. And um, at this point, she's getting to be quite an old ship. She's getting quite rickety. and uh, But she absolutely is there under Nelson's eye, watchful eye. And he puts her very strategically into the fleet. And, of course, she plays an important part in the Battle of Trafalgar. In fact, there were three ships built at Buckless Hard at the Battle of Trafalgar. And, you know, that's interesting to me. There was a fourth dispenser that was at Cadiz uh, at resupply at the time of the battle. But the Agamemnon um, did have a very important role in the battle and was quite badly damaged as well. She was, uh, unfortunately, damaged many times in her life through, uh, through all these battles and had been significantly refitted throughout this time.
2: Yeah, Time and again you read her history, it talks about how how much of a state the Agamemnon is in. I think that's because she was used so much, she was so well liked. And certainly just before the Battle of Trafalgar she really is in a state and they were thinking of breaking her up and it's an example of one of several ships which they repaired just so that they could put a decent fleet to sea to counter Napoleon's plans. It's often forgotten that there was um, a, a a huge move to actually get as many ships, old and rickety as well as new ones, repaired and out to sea just to fight at the Battle of Trafalgar. And uh, she does well. And also um Edward Berry's an interesting character as well, who is Um, A very good friend of Nelson, um, Mm. has a slightly curious reputation and and, um, some say that he just sailed around blazing merrily at the Battle of Trafalgar and didn't really do anything. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm not sure that's quite been decided yet. Um, Now the end of her career, um, let's talk about her wreck uh, because that's something that you've become involved in a great deal in recent Mm. years.
1: Yes. So at the time in 1809, she was with the South American squadron based out of Brazil and out of Rio. And she really was incredibly rickety by that point. You know, they were constantly running the pumps and uh, she really was towards the end of her life. She was under Captain Jonas Rose and she was sailing down the coast of South America. And she's in the small South American squadron with uh, four other ships. And they sail into Maldonado Bay, which is just on the corner of the River Plate, where the Atlantic turns into the River Plate. And it's the first sort of point where if you've come down through the Atlantic, you get a rest, you can get water. And it was a point throughout history where the ships made their first point of of going on to land when they've come down and into the River Plate, where it's a bit safer. The River Plate, though, is is in the most terrifying river. It's actually enormous at the point at when you come into Punta del Este. It's 200 miles across this river. It's insane. It's, it's not a river at all. <laughs> but seat. she comes in. It's, it's just mad when you see it. It's It's amazing. But she sails in, and unfortunately... She, uh, you know, comes in and they hit a shoal and uh, an bank. They've read the charts, but in fact, there's a lot of movement there in the bay, as there is in the whole of the River Plate. And she sadly founders on this shoal. This is in June 1809. And she goes aground in, in actually quite shallow waters. Um, but unfortunately, the anchor... Hits the fluke of the anchor hits in on the starboard side and it caught, catches under the keel and breaks through her bottom and she lists on the starboard side, and and the boat and the ship starts to fill with water. She was already leaking very badly. They were having to run the pumps all the time, and very quickly within three or four hours the lower decks were flooded, and and at that point they started to remove the stores and, that was the tragedy that she then sank there slowly over a number of days. Fortunately. The weather was calm for the first few days when she was wrecked so they were able to take off a lot of stores but um unfortunately for the captain that was uh, you know a disaster to lose a ship under any circumstances um, one of navigational error in effect but he was acqu- acquitted in the court-martialing later on and it was blamed on the quality of the charts and the moving of the of the ground that in fact it he was acquitted of the of the act of losing his ship but it and they managed to salvage an enormous amount off the ship over a four-month period, despite a number of winter storms that came through through June and July. So, uh, all, all the carronades, all the all the mast spars and so on were taken off, um, and the ship was down there managing the salvage operation for four months.
2: Mm. Then it's one hundred and eighty years passes or something like that, doesn't yeah. it? Before before the wreck is found again by by uh, Menson Bound, a very famous um, a famous wreck hunter. Uh, do we know much about what Menson found um, in, when was this,
1: 1997? No, indeed. He Well, he found the ships, but they, it was a bit contentious. The thing is in Maldonado Bay is there are an awful lot of shipwrecks and they overlay each other. So trying to identify ships can be quite challenging because there are multiple shipwrecks of multiple Types and there's a lot of very uh, fast-flowing water. There's been a lot of storms there, and so the wrecks slightly over-cover each other. So when Menson found what he believed to be Agamemnon, yes, they brought up um, one cannon, which is now in the museum in in uh, Montevideo, and a, a ring that had a Nelson seal on it, and a lot of uh, a lot of wooden artifacts were brought up at the time. But that um, th- time Menson brought that up. Those Most of those artifacts are still in Uruguay and uh, contentiously held under odorship. But um, since then, there's never been um, a proper archaeological survey done of the wreck. And that is something we've aspired to do because the wreck is under threat currently. Sadly, what's happened is that there's a, an invasive Welk that has come from the Pacific tankers into the area into the sea around, which has eaten all the mussels that have covered the wreck for two hundred years, mm. and the mussels have covered the wreck, causing like a hard shell across the timbers. This whelk has arrived, literally eaten all the mussels, and i 've seen it for myself, and the mussels are all dead along the beaches, washed up on the shore and the coast, and this has then exposed all the timber. On the wreck which then means that the shipworm can get in and eat the wood so the the, the, the whole all the timbers that are remaining and there are still a lot of timbers remaining are now under significant threat and there's never been a proper archaeological survey of her so this is where we've been putting together a team to try and go down and actually establish it is her um, you know what is left of her is it worth and, and recording that wreck jointly with the Uruguayan authorities
2: And that project, that process of planning is underway at present, is it? What stage are we at?
1: So we've been talking with the Uruguayan government and put together a team here led by Jonathan Adams of Southampton University Centre of Maritime Archaeology and others to go out and do this work, hopefully in March next year in 2023, to do this survey jointly with the uh, Uruguayan authorities there. We're not looking to, at this stage, do anything to touch the wreck. We're just going to survey it using all the latest technology to establish what is there and then take it forward from that point on to see if there's anything that's of value um, that we should then recover anything and look at it as a joint cultural heritage project with Uruguay.
2: And as a part of that, you've got this exhibition and film um, which is being shown at Buckler's Hard. Tell us about the exhibition and the film.
1: So we've been working on the project for a number of years with um, people in Uruguay. So we put together a film sponsored by the British Embassy in Montevideo, uh, which we launched earlier this year, and that is now showing at Buckler's Hard. We've got an exhibition about the project, about the aspirations to survey the ship, about the story of the ship and her history, of course, about her building in Buckler's Hard. So that, that little exhibition is on now at Buckler's Hard from this autumn onwards.
2: Good stuff. Uh, Mary what are you hoping that this will lead to
1: Well obviously we're very uh, I'm very passionate about this wreck since I was a child I have dreamt about seeing this wreck it's the only known wreck of a buccler ship anywhere in the world in survives it's an incredibly important wreck one of the surviving ships of the battle of trafalgar under Nelson, so it is one of the most important wrecks of the British Navy around the Royal Navy around the world. And I, as a child, dreamt about diving on this wreck, which is one of my bucket list things, and I'm determined to do it. Um, <laughs> I very much hope I'm going to do it um, this next year. But the, thing, the other thing that I'd really love to do, apart from actually seeing the wreck for myself, is to try and bring the scale of shipbuilding back to Buckler's Hard. And my great dream is to strip back one of the slipways and to lay the keel again of a 64, such as the Agamemnon. So one of the reasons for doing this survey of the wreck is to actually use the evidence from the wreck to inform a project, perhaps in the future, about laying a keel. There is no doubt I will never build the Agamemnon again and I don't want to and one could never afford to but the aspiration is that you could put something there that could give an indication of size. So even just to lay the keel perhaps with a stem and a stern and even one frame would be enough to give everyone visiting Buckless Hard an understanding of the scale of the shipbuilding task that that, the people did in Buckles Hard as a piece of sculpture almost and as a as a a sort of memorial to those days of shipbuilding, which are so hard to understand the scale and size of the industry that that there was around Britain at that time in the Napoleonic Wars. And that is my aspiration. So this project down in, in Uruguay to survey the wreck is just the start of a much larger ambition to do something which I'm very excited about.
2: Wonderful stuff. I'm very excited about it myself.
1: Um, I mean, who knows if I ever do it? It's a, it's a very <laughs> big challenge. <laughs> it is um, a big challenge. And, uh, you know, we need a lot of wood, but we don't need fantastic wood because it's just a piece of sculpture, in effect.
2: Yeah, and I think it would look wonderful. Um, just very briefly, so you've got the, uh, the exhibition and the film about the Agamemnon. What else can people see at Buckler's Hard if people have not been there before? Give people okay, a taste of what's there.
1: So Buckler's Hard is the most exquisite jewel in Hampshire, in the New Forest, in the south of England, where there is this totally preserved 18th century shipbuilding village. The whole village nestles into the Bewley River. It's completely unspoilt and it has a fantastic maritime museum telling the history of shipbuilding in Bucklers Hard, telling the history of the people who live there, from the, from the times of uh, 18th century shipbuilding right through to the Second World War, which also had a significant role for Buckler's Hard. You can visit the cottages in the village. There's a chapel. There's a lovely pub, of course. And there is the beautiful Beaulieu River where you can go on a river cruise and you can see the riverbanks of the Unspotted Beaulieu River and how they then towed those ships, launched them and towed them over to Portsmouth over a series of days. And it's absolutely beautiful, nestling in the, in the heart of the New Forest.
2: Yeah, it is a magnificent place. Um, I'd urge you all to go. And Mary, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Not at all. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast, and please make sure that this isn't the last thing you do to interact with us or with maritime history as a whole. Your first stop has to be the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page. It's fantastic. My current favourite video is an animation of the mighty five-mastered German ship Preussen, which sailed the world carrying cargo before ending her life on the bottom of the sea off over. It's a great story and the animation which explains the complexities of Square Rig really is quite extraordinary. Please also remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. So do please check out those fantastic institutions. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. I'd urge you to check out their new Maritime Innovation in Miniatures series and the society for nautical research you can find at snr.org.uk where you can join up and get all of the benefits of joining including the brilliant winter lecture series uh, an annual meal on the gun decks of hms victory online access to almost 4,000 articles on maritime history that we have been publishing for over a century it is worth every penny